What a, what a chapter to, um, to have to, uh, to speak on. And uh, it's one of those ones. And thank you for Kim for reading and uh, for Keith as well for those passages. And it, it's one of those passages which we sort of know quite well, really, uh, or we should know quite well. We read it out generally at every Easter, don't we? We go through and in one of the accounts of the Gospels and, and to, to read it. But uh, for... Um, but to actually read it and in terms of um, to speak on uh, and just in our general everyday, just, just as a way we progress through Mark. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, um, there's so many things which go through our minds when we read a passage like this and it's so essential uh, to our faith to know that there, had been a perf- there was a perfect sacrifice. And as we read in, uh, this this morning, and we consider the thoughts which um, which are there, that we'll be truly blessed from it. Lord, each of us that uh, will get something out of this this morning that is from you, and unmistakably from you, Father. That I ask that you just give me the words to say this morning, that I speak them clearly, and Father, that we uh, are really blessed and go from here this morning with a thought in our mind that we now have access into the presence of a righteous, holy God, one who dwells in unapproachable light. And it's all because of the work of the cross. So, Father, as we look at this and, uh, and, uh, and consider these things, Lord, just, uh, just take the distractions away and may we just concentrate on you this morning. Amen. All right. Must pray. Okay, so a quick little recap. Now, Nick's tour bus, which was brought to us several... Um, Probably about eight weeks ago now, was it, Nick? Where are you gone? There he is. Yeah, it's stuck really well. So, uh, uh, but the whole thing of the, of the, of the, uh, in this Gospel of Mark, and we've commented on it every week, is how fast it is. And Mark tends to leave out some of the, 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 into the, the details just to hit on those points. And uh, it's a really good way of reading the Gospel in, in many ways. Um, Last week we had John Thompson, Dr. John Thompson um, from Wycliffe here and that was a challenge to us as well with the messages and the languages which can't even read it in the Bible and here we have how many versions available to us in, in English. And the week before that John brought us uh, the previous chapter, chapter 14 and he started off by saying that God is in control and, and that's something that we have to remember through all these things and not just in what we're just reading here but in our life applications as well and as we go through each day that God is in control that he's not surprised by things that happen um, so God, that was John's point there and it's something which we can carry through Jesus and his disciples had shared the Passover meal together if you remember that and Jesus had taken bread and he had taken wine and, and displayed and, and demonstrated to the, those gathered there on how to have communion, how to remember that and we've done that and shared in that this morning Judas has already gone out at this stage and the rest of them head back out of Jerusalem down to the, uh, back to the Mount of Olives and to the Garden of Gethsemane and we read there the, um, well, we have read before what happens in, in Gethsemane. Judas is then uh, comes along with the band and uh, Jesus has been betrayed by a kiss and he's arrested. And so, that we, um, and so with that we arrive at chapter 15. So he's been arrested and he's taken to, um, into the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish council. And just as a little aside there, Remember also in John's, um, when John brought us chapter 14 that the, 
the nard that was appointed that poured over Jesus' head. Remember that? I, I've been told I have a quite a sensitive nose. Don't say big. That would be rude. The, um, but I can smell things. Uh, and sometimes people come in the, in the shop and they're wearing quite strong perfume and I reckon I can smell them even before I see them from the front door. It's something which is sensitive. But this nard, from what I can tell, was a very, well, we know it was a very expensive perfume and it was anointed on Jesus' head. And I think at, at this stage, he still would be smelling of it. I think it would still be quite a distinctive uh, odour. Just something which I hadn't considered. Now, we've had this read to us. Thank you, Kim. So I'm not going to read it again. But this is the account of very early in the morning. And so we're talking like four, four o'clock. You know, about the time I get up. And, um, and so this is when they were doing their things. And so we've read this through these, these, these first uh, few verses of, of Mark chapter 15. So just for the sake of time, we'll just skip through those ones. The, um, so the hurriedly convened this, so he's been arrested, he's been brought together at the Sanhedrin, 71 odd people, um, Jewish leaders and priests and, and distinguished uh, gentlemen from the, from the community. But even under their own law, it was an illegal gathering, a legal, um, illegal meeting. They, what we would call it in Australia, we'd call it a kangaroo court, wouldn't we? We're judged there by, by just a bunch of people coming together in the spur of the, spur of the moment with a pre-arranged plan to come to a conclusion, the same conclusion that they wanted to come to. They tried to get witnesses together and they contradicted each other. They tried to fabricate the stories and get everyone's stories to line up and the more they tried, the more muddled it became. On a charge of blasphemy, the, the punishment was death by stoning, um, not crucifixion anyway. So on these trumped-up charges... Um, there we go. So he's left for the remainder of the night in this hole in the ground where he's by himself. And then very early the next morning, he's brought, brought before Pilate. Pilate would generally meet people from early in the morning, around six, six o'clock in the morning or earlier, till about noon. Um, so the Jewish officials, they'd already... Um, met before dawn so that they could be the first in line, first in the queue to go and to meet Pilate. And I suspect that everyone else there had been, uh, been warned off um, already not to be there that day. Uh, the charge of blasphemy would not have been sufficient under Roman law for Pilate to become involved, so the crowd, so they added to it that he was trying to overthrow the Roman rule. And unconvinced that Jesus... Um, was what, what the crowd was claiming and finding that he came from Galilee uh, he tries to pass him off and sends him off to Herod now Luke tells us that um, that Herod is uh, not a particularly nice bit of work either uh, but he was greatly pleased to see Jesus because he wanted, he'd heard about him and he wanted to talk to him and he wanted Jesus to perform some miracle for him he really wanted to be entertained by him I, I think and, um, but Jesus uh, remains silent throughout the whole time and the chief priests are some over here and some are there and some are there and they're all yelling and heckling and, and, and demanding that, the, that, that he be crucified. And Herod, because Jesus won't um, perform a miracle, won't entertain him, <coughs> 
Uh, he starts to get in the action as well. And so he starts to mock Jesus as well. And, um, and then finding that he can't uh, find anything wrong, sends him back to Pilate. Now Pilate could sense that the situation was really getting out of his control. And uh, because Herod wouldn't decide, it's come back now into Pilate's um, jurisdiction to, to decide. Because he was um, unconvinced that Jesus was guilty. So he offers to release the terrorists, as we would call them these days. This terrorist called Barabbas. Um, or to release Jesus. That was his custom, as we read before. And then while he sat there waiting for them to make up their minds, well, they'd already clearly made up their minds, but the Jews, his wife sends him a message, if you remember. And the message is, uh, is not to condemn Jesus. Now, if you're sitting there somewhere and you get a message from your wife that she's had a dream, fellas, listen to it. Maybe, mostly. Sometimes. <laughs> Pilate didn't. And uh, he actually goes and washes his hands of it, doesn't he? So moving on from those first 15 verses to now the, the 16 to 20 in this section here where the soldiers then, uh, he's handed, he has him flogged and he's handed over the soldiers um, for crucifixion. There we go. So eager to keep the crowd, this crowd on his side now, Pilate gives in, and they were told that he symbolically washes his hands of the matter. The Jewish leaders then accept full responsibility and even call down the punishment of God, of God upon them and their children. That, I don't reckon, is a very wise thing to do. Of the, Some of the th silly things we do, and the way people, well, even today's society, take the name of the Lord in vain, as, we were, as I grew up to hear, but who use Jesus Christ as a swear term, and how often do you hear, oh my God, um, or even shortened OMG or whatever. It's, it's not right. It's taking the name of the Lord in vain. And these Jewish leaders then, such is the fever that they've got themselves into, and such is the, the way they've whipped themselves up into this frenzy, the frenzy. They say, we'll take the punishment on us and on our children. And we see from that the punishment has remained on the Jewish people to this day. And it will continue until Jesus returns. So the soldiers then take Jesus back. So he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're taken to Caiaphas' house, then to Pilate, then across to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And then Pilate has him flogged, given back to the soldiers, who then take him back to the Praetorium, which is where Herod's hanging out. <coughs> so there's backwards and forwards. Just to, um, they're moving him around. But while they're preparing him now for, for crucifixion and they take these robes and, they, and a garland, which robes and garlands were symbols of uh, royalty and, uh, and the regal dress that the, the leaders wore and, and the um, princes. So the soldiers take Jesus and they dress him in a, in a purple robe <clears throat> and they plait a crown of thorns and they force it onto his head. Um, they repeatedly punch him and beat him and hit him with a rod and call him names. We call it sledging these days. Um, and then I think possibly even worse than being beaten is being spat on. I think that's, uh, you know, I don't want to dwell on these things. But then mockingly they bow down before him and pretend to, to honour him before the beating continues. They then take him in the preparation to crucify him. 
And I would like to read just this little bit here. A certain man uh, from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha. Uh, then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Another little aside. Remember when he was born? Gold, frankincense and myrrh. And now he's being crucified and they're offering myrrh. Being a, a narcotic um, and they mixed it with uh, wine and, uh, but Jesus did not take of it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice on the charges against him read, The King of the Jews. Is. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. <coughs> so while initially um, Jesus started off carrying his cross, uh, it didn't take it long for the physical strain from the abuse that he'd been uh, receiving to take uh, its toll and he's on the verge of collapse. We just read there the Roman soldiers were able to do anything, compel anyone to do anything and so um, this gentleman from Cyrene, Simon, was, uh, which is now actually modern day Libya, was conscripted in to carry the cross for Jesus. It's also interesting that the Roman custom was not to take the shortest route to the, to the crucifixion site, but they would parade them round with more jeering and mocking and, and uh, could be carried and just to, to rub the ridicule in even, even further. So it was only nine o'clock in the morning by the time that um, Jesus was, was, um, got to, the, to Golgotha, the place of the skull as we know, and he's crucified with the two mercenaries. We sing a song, we sang a song at, um, at Easter, if you remember, that they nailed him to the cross, um, to a cross made of wood, and they dropped him in the ground and stood it where it stood. And the blood that flowed from his wounded side brought forgiveness. And that's something which, which is where we're getting to. Um, and I don't want to dwell on the horror of those three hours, but from nine o'clock until till noon, the physical suffering w was intense. Um, and not just the physical, the spiritual was the other um, thing. The mocking would have continued, those passing by. Golgotha wasn't... You remember when you were a kid you had the picture Bible and you had the three crosses up on a hill and they sort of silhouetted against the background. It would seem that it's more likely that it was, on a, it was close enough to a road where people would be passing by. It was very public and so you could hurl abuse and... Uh, as you walk past and, and mock and and uh, and the um, you know, two guys either side of him, two mercenaries as well, and they were there and they were expected to die. They deserved to die because of their, their acts. And one is mocking continually, and they both started to, didn't they? But the, eventually, the the one on the other side repents. He realised that Jesus really was who he said he was, and. Um, he repents and experiences Christ's saving power even at that stage, which uh, is a wonderful comfort. The death of Jesus. So after being on the cross for those three hours, I've never experienced a, um, a solar eclipse, not a full one. I've been the, seen a partial one and it sort of gets a bit, bit dully. But... Um, 
The Bible tells us that um, the whole place was plunged into darkness at this time. I just need those notes down there, please, Matt. Extra stuff from this morning. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Throughout the Bible, um, darkness is used to uh, signify judgment, both in the past uh, and in the future. And, for example, Exodus 10, the Lord tells Moses to stretch out his hands towards the sky and a darkness that could be felt spreads across Egypt. In Isaiah 13, in the day of the Lord, the stars will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. There's other examples in Ezekiel and Joel, Amos and Zechariah. Um, and it's all in relation to judgmental darkness. So darkness being used as an unnatural darkness, not the evening darkness, for, for judgment. We think of the children of Israel and the Passover feast and the, and the angel comes, it was at night. And, that, and it was the darkness there that surrounded them. And by 3 p.m., Jesus having taken on himself the full burden of sin. And as he's approaching death, and for the one and only time in all eternity, Jesus is separated from God as God turns his face away. And that separation that occurred only at that time, and the words that we've already heard this morning, Eli, Eli, lama bachthani, Jesus prepares to give up his spirit in his father's hands, into his father's hands. I found a, a book in our library. Uh, it's written by a guy called Max Lucata. You may have heard of him. And we were reading there about Simon coming in from the countryside. So he's travelling in. Max Lucata writes in his book, Six Hours, One Friday of a shepherd who watched, was watching all this from out in the fields. Remember, the darkness has come over the land. The shepherd stands staring at the now blackened sky. Only seconds before, he had stared at the sun. Now there was no sun. The air is cool, the sky is black. No thunder, no lightning, no clouds. The sheep are restless. The feeling is eerie. The shepherd stands alone, wondering and listening. What is this hellish darkness? What is this mysterious eclipse? What has happened to the light? He's asking himself. There's a scream in the distance. The shepherd turns towards Jerusalem. A soldier, unaware that his impulse is part of an, a divine plan, plunges the spear into the side. The blood of the Lamb of God comes forth and cleanses. The woman has scarcely lit the lamp when her husband rushes to, to the door. The reflection of the lamp's flame dances wildly in his wide eyes. The temple curtain, he breathes, he begins breathlessly, torn, ripped in two from top to bottom. Good. He writes a good um, story or an account. It's not a story, is it? And, um, and as you could imagine, I can, I like these, these word pictures. I can imagine the shepherd there in the dark, the sheep are restless, and the cry that comes. 
and he turns and looks. And the man who rushes home to his wife to see what's happening, and, and he's, he's breathless because he's, all of a sudden he's gone, it is finished. The temple curtain has been torn in two. This barrier which has been there for, for all of the history of the wandering. With a loud cry, Jesus breathes his last, and the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Jesus dies about the same time that the priests would have been preparing the evening sacrifices. In all in the dark and the gloom. It would have been a, a, a strange experience. There's an earthquake and in Matthew's account um, it tells us that many holy people were raised to life and they went into the city. And finally, as we read earlier as well, the centurion who's watching over the crucifixion states that surely this was the Son of God. What does this now mean for us? The Holy of Holies was a place under the Old Covenant where God's presence actually dwelt. The veil was a barrier uh, to make sure that man could not carelessly or, or irreverently enter into God's awesome presence. In the wilderness, there's a pillar of smoke during the day and, and one of fire during the night over the Holy of Holies. It was not a place to be messed with in any way. As a righteous God deserves. It's a place uh, where the high priest went just once a year. As the high priest entered the, the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he had to make meticulous preparations. He had to wash himself thoroughly. He had to put on special clothing. He had to have burning incense so that the, the smoke from the incense would, would be between his eyes and the presence of, the, of God. And he had to bring blood with him to make atonement for sins. This curtain, from what you, different accounts, if you, if you um, to read them, was probably uh, about, in metric terms, uh, what, six metres high, three metres wide, and four inches, 100 mil thick. And uh, woven into it was, was gold and, and, and purple and cherubim. It was quite... A solid thing, and uh, and it was torn in two at that precise moment. So the question we have is, how could the sacrifice of Jesus be sufficient for all our sins, past, present, and future? That sacrifice of one, one man. I think we need to go back to possibly where Jesus, when Jesus began or did his first miracle at the wedding of Canaan. And when he knew then, and that decision was made, if you remember back when we were looking at that, and he set his face to go. He knew that once it started, where this was going to end, it was going to end on that cross. His whole life was designed to bring him to the cross. In uh, Mark four, uh, ten forty five, it says, "For even the Son of Man came not to serve, uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many." In John twelve and twenty seven, uh, yep, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. In Hebrews two and fourteen, it says, "Since therefore the children share in." flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. That is why he's born, 
That is why he lived. The saving effect of his death was therefore the sum and climax of his sinful life. It was the reason he came, the reason he was born was that so he could die on that cross as that perfect sacrifice. As the veil, as the veil was torn, the holiest of holies was now exposed for everybody. God's presence was now accessible to all. And that would have been so shocking for the priests who were now out of a job. Now, they would have been ministering there and to have that happen. I mean, they knew what would happen if they went in there unprepared. They were dead. But here it was not by their doing, but by God's doing. It's now ripped open and his presence has now gone out and to all, to all of us. It is indeed good news to us as believers because we know that Jesus' death what has atoned for our sins and made us right before God. Even though it happened all that time ago, <clears throat> it has allowed for us to now have a relationship with a righteous God. The torn veil illustrates that Jesus' body uh, broken for us, opening the way uh, for us to come to God. As Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross, he was indeed proclaiming that God's redemptive plan was now complete. The age of animal offerings was over and the ultimate offering had now been sacrificed. Isaac Watts uh, wrote a song back in the 18th century um, and uh, it said, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. Um, again, just reinforcing that without the sacrifice that they, that they had, all those sacrifices they'd done for years and years and years and years and years and thousands upon thousands of sacrifices uh, couldn't remove the stain. And here it was now removed forever. Oh, what a joy. Could you imagine it? What they would have had to do. The, the, the change is, is just collapsing. It's just amazing. Um, we can now boldly enter into God's presence, that inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf in Hebrews 6 and 19. Also in chapter 10 of Hebrews it says, Therefore brothers, since we have confidence now to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. That is a pretty good promise. So Jesus has died. The temple curtain is gone. And what happens? The burial of Jesus. There's still the mockers and those who wanted. They think they've had the victory, don't they? In asking for um, two guys, Joseph and Nicodemus. We haven't heard much about Nicodemus for a while throughout Scripture. But here he is. He, he's come good in the end, hasn't he? He and Joseph have gone to Pilate and asked for the body and, um, and they were members of the Sanhedrin but they didn't want to, uh, Jesus crucified. The other thing of going and asking for a body is that when people, when criminals were, or when people were uh, crucified they weren't given a, a proper burial, they were chucked in a mass grave. And so they saved uh, Jesus' body from in the usual course of events of being taken down and just dumped. So they've gone and taken, got the body and taken it and Joseph gives up his own tomb so that Jesus could have a, an honourable burial. The two men are hurriedly preparing um, his body before the Sabbath day arrest and they couldn't do a thing. Jesus' body is wrapped 
and placed in Joseph's tomb and a large rock is placed in the opening and the Roman guard is posted and the Roman seal is put on there. And those who plotted to kill Jesus think that they have now won. They'll be gloating, they'll be smug, wouldn't they? They think they've done it, got rid of that troublemaker. Yeah, there's some confusion, something happened over the temple, but, but they, they've won, they feel they've won. And they see them, when they, and as Jesus' body is buried, they think that's the end of it. But was it the end? Well, it's not my job to do chapter 16. So you have to come next week to see, next week to see what happens in chapter 16 as we finish, finish off in Mark. One other thought that came out of, um, I was reading, just reading Max Lucado's and just in closing, well, this book, um, Six Hours, One Friday, if you find it, have a read. It's written interestingly. But the three points that, that he makes in there, he says, our lives are not futile. Our, our failures are not fatal and our death is not final. Our lives are not futile. We might think we're not getting anywhere, just spinning our wheels or, or being a trouble um, or being a nuisance. But we feel that we haven't done anything. Our failures, which, which happen on occasions, and they're not fatal, not eternally fatal. And above all, our death is not final. Because when we close our eyes to this world, when we're conscious, we'll be in Jesus' presence forevermore. And we'll be dwelling with him forevermore. In a place where there'll be no sun needed, because his light will fill the place. And we'll have that ability and the authority to enter into his Father's presence. Until then, we've got a few jobs to do and we go daily and uh, we do have some issues from a day-to-day, daily, don't we? As we still deal with the old self and the old way. But isn't it good that we have a Holy Spirit to guide us? We need to listen to those voices as Abram, share, Abram Corinne and Hannah and Michael shared. You've got to listen to these voices sometimes when they tell you to do something. If it's the Holy Spirit, go and check in your word. Go and spend some time in prayer. Make sure where it's coming from. It's not coming from us and our own selfish desires, but it's coming from God. And if he's telling you to do something, let's do it. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, this message is, is um, disturbing as we listen, as we read about what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ and our imaginations uh, run away with us sometimes and we can dwell on the, the horror of it and it was the separation for you was the worst that moment that t- short period of time when the sin of the world was put on a perfect sinless body in the Lord Jesus Lord Jesus thank you for going through with it for staying on that cross for not um, finding another way and we're making it possible now now so that now we can have a direct relationship we don't have to go through sacrifices we don't have to go through a priest we can just say father and just as um, Joseph and Nicodemus came through in the end 
perhaps we can also be encouraged in the face of adversity to stand up for you and to uh, be able to show forth what it means to be a Christian in this country. We thank you for the freedom we have. And as we've heard this morning from other areas just not far away, the very basics are denied so many people because of their faith. It's a challenge to us, Father. Show us ways to reach and to help those people, to help those around us here in this area on the Sunshine Coast as well. The people who are still going to a lost eternity, full of self and full of their own thoughts and thinking that they will be good enough on that day of reckoning. So Lord, we just thank you again for this, the work of the cross. And as we consider now the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his burial, and Father, we look forward so, weak, so much to learning that, hallelujah, you rose again. As we leave this place now, Father, may our thoughts just be on you. And throughout this week, we just ask that you'll speak to each one of us when we need to. Remind us that you love us. Remind us that our lives are not futile that we will fail on occasions and you'll pick us up again and our death will not be final, Father. It's just the beginning. We thank you now and ask for a blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.